Welcome to Living Chassidus. Together, let's live the Chassidus we learn. Hello, everybody. And we are so excited to have everybody here. Um, I wanted to make a special introduction for anyone who hasn't yet heard about Living Chassidus in our Life Skills series. We are, Living Chassidus is an organization for women primarily based in Crown Heights, um, but we have a reach, especially we had, I always say we had Zoom before it was cool. So we have a reach that was, that really goes far beyond Crown Heights. So welcome everybody who's here from everywhere. Um, we take care, as our name says, of living Hasidus. So we have not just Chassidus classes or not just these life skill series classes, we have a combination of both of them because we truly believe and we know that the Abishter, the Hashem wants us to have a combination and to truly live what we, um, what we live with, what we learn. So Chassidus is not meant to be just in a book and it's meant to be lived in every stage of life. And so this life skill series, we come to help everybody live the life that they're meant to be, the life that we know Hashem wants you to have, and so therefore we want you to be prepared. We don't want anybody to ever reach a point where you say, Oi, no one ever told me. And I lived through many, now Limech is in its eighth year, and I've lived through many, many, many young women becoming um, married and entering new life stages in their life and say, Oi, I didn't even know about this. I didn't even know. And we all know that sometimes, you know, we can get married and we're engaged and then we're not, it's like a blur preparing for our wedding and then we get married and it's a blur and it's just, and very quickly before we even know it, sometimes, you know, we are pregnant and we say, oh my goodness, what, I don't even know anything. I haven't even thought about this. So we spoke to our mashpiyim, we spoke to our abonim and they gave us the green light to educate women and the things that they need to know that way they now they have time to think and process this information and it's one of my favorite things about judy that she doesn't come and she tell us she doesn't just tell us this is what you should do or this is what you shouldn't do she gives you the full information the full picture and then you're able to process it however you want and therefore you can make you're an educated consumer you can make your decisions um so i'd like to introduce judy i know that i did a thorough introduction last time but she definitely needs a beautiful introduction she is first of all I am so lucky to call her my friend and I have to say a special thank you to Kristen who set us made our friend um, but Judy graduated with a BYA as a valid from Base Yaakov Academy High School as valedictorian in 2008 she attended CUNY College of Staten Island for her nursing degree and she was one of the two students to be named the CUNY Merit Scholar. She completed her midwifery education at SUNY Downstate Medical Center with high honors. And now she is finishing her doctorate at NYU's DNP program as a Susan Kahn Letty Scholar and Rory Myers Academic Scholar. So just in case you missed all of that, it's called Judy is really smart. And we're so lucky to have her. Um, now she has, she's drawn to midwifery and she, I mean, she's becoming a midwife, but what draws her to midwifery is that it's gentle and it's humble. 
and she has shadowed, shadowed Dr. Eden Fromberg, a holistic gynecologist, prior to opening up her own integrative GYN practice at the Yuhi Ash Center, Holistic Midwifery, New York. Now she offers integrative GYN care, prenatal care, and home birth. And we are so lucky to have her. So Judy, please help us, educate us. It's so overwhelming, Michal, firstly, that you call me your friend. I'm so humbled by that. And Kristen today asked me to send you a hug from her. So that's your virtual hug from Kristen Leonard. <laughs> one of my beloved midwife mentors. And, you know, I feel so lucky to be here because I feel like I'm one of all of you. I'm uh, just a curious person and I want to learn more information. And I feel strongly about being female. And I, I, I believe with my heart and soul that birth works and that women were designed to give birth. So the first time I ever heard of the concept that women should tear during childbirth and require stitches was about 12 years ago, 11, 12 years ago. And I was so surprised by it. Like what natural process that in the entire world depends on something commercialized? I can't think of anything. When does the natural process require the era of industrialization? Like, how could it be that something as inherent and normal and part of life as bringing forth a baby, how could it be that it requires routinely suture material, that it requires routinely a needle? And I asked person after person when I was expecting a baby. And this was, you know, over 11 years ago. So home birth was really not as common then. And unfortunately, I didn't ask any home birthers. And every single last woman that I asked told me, oh, yeah, everybody has stitches when they have a baby. And I kept asking more people because I just refused to accept it. It's counterintuitive. And we as women should not be willing to accept that. And the reason tearing to the point that it should require stitches has become so routine and so part of birth is very much a consequence of the medicalization of childbirth, which means giving birth in a position that's not ideal for birth, like on your back, or giving birth in a way that somebody else is directing the mother how to birth her baby, directed pushing. These are all factors that have led to the routine ripping of very important female muscles. So we, before we even talk about how to prevent a tear and what to do if a person does have a tear and what are the differences between types of tears? Like are all tears the same? And how to recover long-term if you've had a bad tear. Before we even go all into that, let's just discuss these muscles for a minute. The pelvic floor muscles are the muscles that surround the urethra, the vagina, and the anus. And they work as like a hammock, almost like a sling 
to hold a woman's bladder in place, a woman's uterus in place, a, a woman's rectum in place. So they have a very important function in a woman's body. Those muscles not only prevent the uterus from sagging, but those muscles control continence. So our ability to hold in urine and feces when we want to or need to is directly affected by the strength of those pelvic floor muscles. Now those pelvic floor muscles are directly also involved in sexuality, right? If a woman is tighter, she potentially can experience more pleasure or less pleasure depending on her ability to control how tight she can squeeze those muscles. So, I mean, each of those reasons are alone a compelling enough reason to protect and guard and cherish those muscles and make them strong and healthy as ever, right? They control being female. They control something as basic and necessary as continence, right? They control holding very important organs in place in the human body, and we need to protect them. So we need to protect them firstly day to day, but for sure during childbirth. Day to day, a person can protect their muscles by avoiding constipation, right? Because there's a strain on those muscles if a person's constipated, by avoiding heavy lifting. And if a person does use an American toilet, um, the way it's designed is that it facilitates really, it doesn't really facilitate elimination well, besides for creating a kink in the colon, sitting on an American toilet puts unnecessary strain on the pelvic floor muscles when bearing down. A squatty potty, does anybody recognize that product? It's a great product. And it really just helps a person get into a squat position the way they do it in other cultures. And just turning over your garbage can, a bathroom garbage can and lifting one's legs on top of the garbage can is really the idea of what a squatty potty is. It's just lifting the legs so that a woman's in a squat position. And that's an easy way to protect your pelvic floor muscles day to day. But when it comes to childbirth, the baby is coming through the, vag the vaginal opening. That means all those pelvic floor muscles are stretching to accommodate a big, beautiful baby. So that's the time that you want to be so careful that there's no trauma. And mothers who don't tear after a birth and are intact, it's an easier recovery. There's no wound to the birth. Their body doesn't have pain necessarily in that part of their body at all. Like it's, it's just, they opened and then their body shrinks back naturally. There's no wound to heal from. And it's easier to sit. It's easier to be mobile. They're less likely to get an infection. There's so many benefits to protecting and preserving those muscles just in the immediate short term, like the first day and two days and three days and six days postpartum. I'm not even talking about the six week mitzvah visit when whether or not a woman's tour can really play a role in how quickly she can go to the mikvah, right? And with pain or without pain and how extensive that tear is and how she healed from that tear. You know, as a bodekas, I've seen 
I've seen even like eight months postpartum, and this really breaks my heart, but I've seen even like eight months postpartum mothers still struggling to get to the mikvah. They've gone to the mikvah, but they still have trouble sometimes through the Zion Nikiyam because they had a bad laceration during birth. They officially healed from it from a medical standpoint. It was an uncomplicated recovery. So their skin wasn't infected. Their muscles came back together. But the way their body scarred is that they grew something called granulation tissue. And that granulation tissue over the scar is very vascular. So it has a lot of blood flow there. And that's where when women do a badika, they run into trouble where they end up at a bodekas. I mean, it's rather unpleasant to not be able to just accomplish your Zion Nikiyam independently, right? And it's just from tearing. And when I see that, you know, my first question is always, what was done to prevent the tear in the first place? And not all tears are preventable. And I want to say that. The majority of mothers can and should be intact. But that doesn't mean that every tear is preventable. And we're going to talk about there's different types of tearing and how extensive it is. And that's going to play a very big role in how it impacts a woman's short-term and long-term health. So, you know, the woman who mentored me, the midwives that I've sought out for mentorship, the midwives that I've traveled out of state for, some of them, to spend time with them. And this goes back years ago. They've had a goal, and I respect them so much for this. They had a goal at the birth that the mother should be intact. It's like there should be a safe baby, a safe, healthy baby, a happy mother, and her body should be whole. And we can't overstate the importance that that needs to be a goal. It can't be left to chance. Like, okay, after the birth, we're going to check to see what repair needs to be made. It can't be like that. It needs to be that there are directed efforts to protect and preserve the integrity of the birthing mother's body. So how do you do that? Women can even do it themselves, by the way. I mean, there's what there's things for the midwife to do, but the mother herself can protect her own perineum. And let's talk about that. If you were giving birth in a forest and you were not socialized into getting into any position and you've never seen a birth movie, you've never seen a picture of a woman in a bed, you knew nothing about childbirth. You were just raised in the wild and you were on your own and you were birthing your baby, you could birth your baby. I mean, other mammals birth their baby, right? You wouldn't need to be told when to push or how to push. It's instinctive. Your body is wise. Your body grew the baby. Your body can birth the baby, wants to birth the baby, and your body will signal to you what you should do to help facilitate that birth at the exact right moment that that baby is meant to be born. And what your body would signal to you, firstly, is to get into a good birth position. And your body would direct you and make you comfortable in a position that works 
with gravity, like squatting, kneeling, being on all fours, on your hands and knees, standing. Your body wouldn't just lie you on your back. Your body wouldn't tell you to go upside down. Your body will direct you to a position that's the most safe, comfortable, and easy, gentle way to bring a baby forth. And when women are in these optimal birth positions, like we just described, say hands and knees, for example, on all fours, which is a very common position that mothers like. What happens then is that the head of the baby does not direct an unnatural amount of pressure on the perineum. The perineum is the area right behind the vaginal opening. It's between the opening to the vagina and the anus. And that's the area where many of the tears that happen occur. They're perineal tears, many of them. So when you're in, think of yourself on your hands and knees, the pressure of the head is not so much directed toward the perineum in that position. And when the head is crowning, your body, if you were just alone in a forest, your body would feel such an intense sensation that it would shock you and slow you down. And you'd be like, what, what? You wouldn't just bear down through it. The enormous pressure and the, what women, some women call burning, but the enormous sensations that a woman feels as the head is emerging and she's stretching would slow a woman down. Slowing the birth process down is one of the key ways to protect a woman from tearing and a key way that you can protect yourself from a tear. Rather than give, you know, like when the baby's really able to be born and there's this big urge to just like, ah, let that baby out. If a mother would just, ah, ah, let the energy outward without using that energy downward so that her body can gradually stretch to the circumference of the baby's head, that gives the tissue the time that it needs to stretch rather than tear. So having that patience and really just giving the body the time it needs allows the body to do the work it wants to do. And what's fascinating is that if you ever watch a woman give birth and you see it most pronounced on a first time mother, as the mother's bearing down, the head comes, right? You see more head, but then it's like two steps forward, one step back. The head comes and then it regresses a little. She pushes again, the head comes again forward and it regresses and comes back in a little bit. And the body's doing that to protect itself from birthing the baby too quickly. The body wants to protect itself from tearing and allow the stretching of these very important muscles and very important tissue to take place. So it won't just, oh, push, baby out, out, out. No, baby out, then baby comes back in a little. Stretch, come back in. Stretch, come back in. 
In the literature, there's a discussion on what can be done by the birth attendant, whether that's a physician or a midwife, the person who's attending the birth, what can they do to protect hearing? And ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, which is the national professional organization in the United States for the medical establishment the, for obstetricians, ACOG, they describe that research supports using a warm compress on the perineum at the time that the mother is stretching and the head is about to emerge. They say that using a warm compress there prevents third and fourth degree tears. And we're gonna talk about third and fourth degree tears, the most extensive kind of tears that extend into the anal sphincter or through the anal sphincter. And those are real injuries that are complications, potential complications of a birth process. And they say that using a warm compress will protect a mother from that. And I question what the rationale is. And what comes to mind is it might be that a warm compress brings circulation to the area and when you bring more circulation, the tissues can stretch more easily. Or it might be that just putting that counter pressure to the perineum as the head is coming out, just counter pressuring it with that warm compress helps keep the perineum intact. And I also wonder if the kind of attendant who's using a warm compress means they're mindful of protecting the mother from tearing. It means they're trying to protect from a tear. So I wonder if that just prompts them to do other guidances to the mother in that critical moment to help prevent, prevent her from tearing. For example, just whispering, slow it down now, the head's almost out, right? So that the mother's forceful pushing is relaxed and that the body can stretch slowly. So using a warm compress is definitely an evidence-based approach. I've seen something that works really well, and that's called, and this is also done by the midwife, not by the mother herself. A mother could do it herself also, and I can describe to you how it can be done. And it's, it's called keeping the head well flexed. And what that means is, I'm just going to demonstrate on myself. You see this part of my head? Everybody, you see that? Like if I wore a yarmulke, I might put, and I wore my yarmulke toward the back of my head. That's where I would wear a yarmulke. That part of the baby's head usually gets born first. And the reason for that is that it's the easiest part of the head to birth. It's the narrowest diameter of the baby's head. As compared to this circumference, this circumference is narrower. And it also molds easily. So that's the part of the baby's head that comes out usually first. And when that happens, keeping the head in a controlled position, like keeping the, the neck well tucked in by putting pressure on the head so that the baby doesn't just come out like this and tear its mother, I have found that that really is preventative of tears to keep that head in a steady position. Similarly, when a baby's hand is being born with its head. Has anybody had that? It's called a compound presentation. And when a hand is being born with the head, I've seen mothers birth that intact. What you want to be mindful of, and this is really a mid, the midwife or the physician, the, the birth attendant would be the one doing this, is that instead of allowing 
the head, the hand to just do this as it's being born and potentially tear the mother. You keep the hand very close to the baby's head so that the head and hand get birthed together and the baby doesn't do that on its way out. So these are just different pieces that the midwife can do. And some midwives use oil. I would recommend staying away from a commercialized lubricant and a healthy type of oil is your best option because the baby's going to swallow it on the way out, right? I've heard a little bit of Alana Cohn's discussion on the microbiome, how the baby's health is, you know, the, the vaginal flora, the bacteria that the baby is first introduced to on its way into the world become the seeds of this baby's microbiome, the trillions of bacteria that will grow and proliferate in its gut. So to have lubricant mixed into that when it's such a vulnerable, sacred time for the microbiome that the baby should swallow lubricant is like, for what? You may as well use a healthy kind of oil that's meant for ingestion. So at least it's like something that the human body is meant to have inside of it. So I would recommend just a healthy oil, not a lubricant. Same with, by the way, if you choose to have a vaginal exam during labor, if you want it, either forgo the lubricant, because you may not, it may not make a difference for you at that point, or use like a healthy oil. So same idea, not to disrupt the vaginal microbiome as the baby's being born. But, um, ooh, someone's asking a really good question here that I'm seeing. Correct, coconut oil is antimicrobial and that's why an oil like avocado oil would be a better bet than coconut oil because coconut oil will disrupt the vaginal microbiome more so than avocado oil. That's absolutely right. Thanks for bringing that up. And, and, we were, so we're talking about the baby coming out and trying to ease the baby out slowly with oil. And there's this belief that stretching the perineal muscles in advance of birth helps people to not tear. How many people have heard of that as a trick to not tear? Because I'm hearing, I'm hearing that in a lot of directions that people hear of it. How many people have heard of that as an approach? Because I just want to share with you, there's to that approach. And there are definitely, you've heard of that. Okay, Sima. Yeah, there's, I want to share with you, there's criticisms to that approach. There are definitely midwives who swear by it. But the way that I've been trained, and, and what seems rational to me also, is that by stretching people, perineal massage, like let's stretch the mother's vaginal opening open in advance of the birth, whether that's in the ninth month, whether that's during the labor, like manually stretching the opening open, it causes swelling in the tissue and it makes a person even more susceptible to a tear. Like other mammals don't stretch themselves like that in advance of a birth. And mothers report a lot of discomfort with it. And I also question the rationale for it because when people tear, they're not tearing to go from this to this. They're tearing to go from here to here, right? The final bit. When you're stretching a mother through perineal massage, you can never stretch her this much. You're stretching her at max to this. So we're not even really preparing her for the part 
where the potential tearing is going to happen. And maybe the reason some people find it to prevent tears is just because it helps the mother get used to the sensation of stretching so that when the baby's actually being born, she can tolerate that sensation and be able to like hold it out longer and slow herself down at the end. That could be the rationale, but then there's no reason to cause discomfort to the mother in advance. You can just tell the mother there will be an intense sensation as the baby's head is emerging. And if you hold it out a little bit and I'll guide you, when, like just slow it down. You know, I'll guide you during that critical moment when you're stretching. And if you could just breathe it out or breathe it in rather than bear down, then a mother, mothers are very motivated to do that. You know, that's what I have found. It's funny because it's, I'm going to read that. Um, one second, you know, I'm just getting a message. I'm going to read that in a minute, but you know, I was recently out of birth and the mother told me as she was birthing her baby, Judy, make sure I don't tear. And I, uh, I said, of course. And I said, you're intact. And I reassured her you're intact, you're intact. And we slowed it down at the end. And she had a really nice size baby. And she didn't, she didn't, she had like a skid mark. She didn't have a tear. Baruch Hashem. And when she told me that, Judy, make sure I don't tear. And we had talked in advance that I'm going to guide her. And I knew she had had an episiotomy in the past. And she had torn the previous birth with stitches. So I knew she had scar tissue there. And when she told me, Judy, make sure I don't tear, what went through my mind is that's one of the main reasons I'm here, right? I'm here to try to ensure that the baby's born safely and that the baby's doing well. And my other role is to protect the mother. And the role of the birth attendant at a birth is to do both of those responsibilities. And, you know, I'm going to share with you a story. I was once guiding a first-time mother during the last stage of her birth experience. And we were on a birthing stool. And then she it was in a hospital. And she said, I don't want to birth on the birthing stool. So I said, okay. And she said she wants to go on the bed. And she jumped into the bed. And as her body was stretching, I like saw she's capable of stretching, of course. But I saw her body needed that extra time. And... We were doing it slowly, and a nurse nearby saw that the birth was imminent, right? Like the, so much of the head was visible that just one push, and this baby could have been out. So the nurse started telling her, push! And to counteract that, I had to say, no, 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 don't push, just breathe it out. And the nurse is like, push! And I'm like... No, 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 I'm keeping the, I was keeping the head well flexed and putting counter pressure to the perineum. And I'm like, no, 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 don't push. You're intact. Slow it out. Slow it down. And, and the nurse, I think it was like three times, push. And in the end, the baby was born and she was in, had an intact perineum. Thank God. And I'm sharing the story because it was a very sad moment for me. I turned around and I noticed that the nurse didn't even take note whether or not the mother was intact. Like she didn't even see the outcome and the benefit that this mother slowed down. So she couldn't even know otherwise that telling somebody push, push, push recklessly as their body stretching 
is setting them up for a lot of pain. And I felt in that moment that there isn't enough of a priority that this mother should be intact. It isn't enough on the agenda. I felt like it wasn't one of the goals of the birth. And I have to say that the midwives who brag, and, and brag has a negative connotation, but the midwives who take pride in their intact perineal rates, in the midwives who, the midwives who take pride in how weird they need a stitch, those are midwives who are making it a priority that the mother should not tear. And that's so, so important. So there's definitely, by the way, diet that plays a role. Like a person who eats good quality, adequate sources of protein will have better tissue integrity. It means they would also heal more easily if they did tear. A person whose diet is rich in omega-3 fatty acids, right? Like they eat wild caught fish. They eat chia seeds or sardines or wild caught salmon. These are people who have nutrition on their side, right? Nutrition impacts every function of the person's body. Nutrition impacts every cell in the human body. So we can't ignore the role that nutrition plays. But I have to say that what's done at the birth really makes or breaks it. And that there are midwives with very high intact perineal rates, even working with mothers who don't necessarily have great nutrition. Okay, so there are different types of tear. Okay, can a doula Okay, should I, let me ask the group, what, what's your preference? Should I take questions now and go through the messages that are being sent to me? Or should I continue to talk and then I'll go through all the messages or people could even ask me questions openly? What's the group's preference? Because I'm here to, I'm here to work according to what you want. What, what would you prefer? Like, should I, you know, maybe we're going to keep the questions for the end and totally send them in the chat and then we'll go through them at the end. Okay. Cause like these questions are so terrific and they really deserve answers. And I won't necessarily have the answers for everybody's questions. If I don't know it, I'll tell you, or I'll tell you that I'll look it up and get back to you, or I'll tell you the answer if I do know it. Okay. So there are different types of tears. You know, if you, you know, I've gotten a paper cut so many times in my life. And it was uncomfortable, but then it just healed, right, really easily. Because a paper cut, even if it's really long, even if it extends from here to here, it's very superficial. And a superficial tear are what we call first-degree tears in the perineum. Those are tears that do not extend into the muscle. And those are tears that do not necessarily require stitching. And those are tears that heal easily. And those are tears that tend to not bleed a lot. And those are tears that don't affect your continence as much and don't affect pelvic, you know, pelvic organ prolapse because it's not, they're not muscles. So it's a superficial tear. And I don't want to minimize it because when it's in such a sensitive part of a woman's body, any tear can cause her pain or burning on urination. 
and especially in a vulnerable time like postpartum, you know, any additional discomfort shouldn't be taken lightly. So I don't in any way want to trivialize a first degree tear. But the first degree tears are not the concerning tears. Then we go to second degree tears. And again, second degree is characterized by the depth of the tear, not the length, but the depth. And the second degree tear extends into the perineal muscle, but it does not extend into the anal sphincter. A third degree tear is what's called an obstetric injury. Like it's a, it, it, O-A-S-I, obstetric, obstetric anal sphincter injury. A third degree tear goes into the anal sphincter and a fourth degree tear goes through the anal sphincter. And those are really serious kinds of lacerations. Those are lacerations that are more risk for not being repaired correctly, for causing incontinence, for requiring re-repair. Those are lacerations that are caused more likely by an episiotomy or forceps or a vacuum. Those are lacerations, right? Like if somebody is cut and it, there's almost never an indication that a woman should be cut, almost never. But if a woman is cut, then she's at risk for that cut to extend and tear and become more extensive. And third and fourth degree tears are more common when an episiotomy is cut. And third and fourth degree tears might need to be repaired in an operating room. It depends. Third and fourth degree tears are really serious. Like, you know, they can cause a mother a lot of discomfort and a lot of problems. And when I think of how close anatomically the vaginal opening is to the anal sphincter, it makes me realize just how important it is to protect a mother from tearing. Like you really can't gamble that to Hasbashalm have such an extensive laceration. Fortunately, third and fourth degree tears are quite rare, especially in physiologic births where there's no vacuum, there's no forceps, very rare to have an episiotomy, right? A physiologic birth is unmedicated, mother in a good position, bearing down open glottis, which means instead of bearing down mm, counting to 10 and depriving the baby and mother of oxygen, bearing down like the natural instinctive way, which would be like, ah, 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 breathing between bearing down. And that's the physiologic way of birthing. It's also called open glottis, open mouth pushing. So Third and fourth degree tears are not common when a mother births physiologically like that, like naturally. Um, and third and fourth degree tears, you know, those also take much longer to heal from and they're sutured with very strong suture material so that the wound can be the, given the time that it requires in order to heal. But the most common type of outcome of a hospital vaginal delivery and this is straight from ACOG, straight from the literature, the most common outcome of a vaginal hospital delivery is that yes, 
a woman will tear and the tears are usually second degree, which means they're not anal sphincter injuries, but they're not either superficial like a first degree. They go through perineal muscle, but that's from a hospital delivery. In home birth settings, a good midwife should have the majority of her mothers intact and many of the rest should just be a first degree. And second degree shouldn't be common and certainly third and fourth should be rare. But again, it's not always preventable and I want to reiterate that it's not like, sure, medical terms, sure. First degree is just through the skin, superficial tear. Second degree is through the muscles in that part of the body, right? We said the perineum is the area between the opening to the vagina and the opening to the anus. So perineal muscles are the muscles between the vagina and the anus. If those tear, it's a second degree. And a third and fourth degree is when the anal sphincter, the sphincter that surrounds the anus is involved. And those are much more severe tears and lacerations. And what we're talking now is the fact that most people can be intact, should be intact. If they tear, hopefully it's a first degree or at worst the second degree. And I want to say that what I was saying before is that it's not always preventable, meaning even really skilled midwives, even really caring midwives who truly want and do their utmost to protect the perineum and are skilled at doing it. Sometimes there are tears that are truly unpreventable. And that could be birth position, baby position, that could be mother's tissue integrity, like the mother's ability to stretch, and that could be the mother's bones and the mother's anatomy. Like, there really are unpreventable tears. It, it doesn't mean the midwife was careless, but having a midwife with a high intact perineal rate is important because it means it's somebody with a strong track record of being cautious with the perineum. You know, when it comes to water birth, there's research that says that having a baby in the water is actually protective of the perineum. But that research is conflicting. Some research says that it's protective and that women tend to tear less. Some women say, some research says that shows that it doesn't help prevent tearing. The question that I wanna give about water birth is that it does reduce the amount that the midwife can see very clearly the mother stretching. It reduces her, the visualization. So a midwife who's being very cautious that the mother shouldn't tear and is giving that guidance at the end, we're just putting a barrier between her and the birth. There's water in between. And that needs to be considered, you know, how much will that affect the midwife? What will the midwife do to compensate for that? Will she instead feel and guide by hand? And then again, there's research that says just being in the water is itself protective. So I just am putting out that consideration when it comes to water birth. Um, but I'm sorry, I'm just reading all these terrific questions and I really want to address them. So please keep sending them in because I really hope to address them and we'll talk about them together. But meanwhile, I'm just going to finish up and then I'm going to get to the questions. I mean it, I'm really going to get to the questions. So let's talk about, let's say somebody has a first degree. Should you want to get it stitched up or should you let it heal by itself? 
So ARCOG, which is the professional organization in England, like it's their ACOG, I was just reading in advance of this speech, I was just reading a, the paperwork that they give out to mothers, and it says straight out, first degree tears tend to heal naturally and don't need to be stitched up. So that's their position. The American College of Nurse Midwives published a research article, and I read this about 15 months ago, so it came out at least 15 months ago. And it's funny, I remember telling it to Kristen. And what they came out with was a study that compared a group of mothers who had a second degree tear. They tore through the skin, like superficially, so they had like a first degree, and then it extended into the muscles, so it was a second degree. Some of those mothers got stitched up only the muscle layer. And then they were left with like this first degree tear unstitched. The other group of mothers got completely stitched up. Their muscle was stitched up, like the second degree part of their tear, and the first degree part of their tear, the superficial skin. And they compared the outcomes of these two mothers at the six week postpartum visit to see how does it affect healing? How does it affect pain? How does it affect sexuality? How does it affect continence? How does it affect body image when you leave the outer superficial layer unstitched? And what they found is that leaving that outer layer unstitched, like a first degree amount of tearing unstitched and just tearing and just um, suturing and stitching the muscle itself, like the second degree part, leaving it unstitched didn't in any way hurt the healing process. Those mothers weren't incontinent. Those mothers didn't have, you know, difficulty resuming relations. Those mothers didn't have male approximation, meaning tissue that wasn't lined up. Those mothers healed just as well as the mothers who got stitched up completely, including that superficial layer. And the only difference was that by not stitching that layer, there was less pain. So their conclusion was that we should consider that with a second degree tear to only stitch the muscle and to not overstitch it, like don't stitch the superficial layer. But the limitation to that study was that it was a very small group. So it becomes harder to take out generalizations because it wasn't like, you know, 5,000 women participating. It was a small group, so it's less significant, the findings. But I think when it comes down to whether or not you should stitch a first degree tear or whether how much you should stitch a second degree tear, I really think it's one of the things that comes down to what your philosophy is. Are you the kind of person who feels more concerned with the natural process or are you the kind of person who feels more concerned with intervention? And everybody's different and has a different comfort level. If you're the kind of person who's a very hardcore naturalist and says, you know, I have a first degree tear. I believe my body's designed to heal. I'm going to rest with my legs together. I'm going to put in a piece of seaweed to help my skin tissue stick together. I'm going to sit in a sitz bath with different herbs that promote circulation and healing. 
and I'm going to rest and take care of my body. And I feel that I can heal from this superficial tear without needing to put suture material into my body. That's one approach. And that's a very reasonable approach based on the research. That's very reasonable. And then there's another approach that's also very reasonable. If you're the kind of person who says, I think it's too big of a risk that my superficial tear will not heal back together the same. It will be like a little off. I want it stitched up. And I'm not so concerned with a little bit of suture material in my body that my body will absorb because the body has like an inflammatory response to the suture material and the body consumes it and absorbs it. And you could say, I'm not concerned about what my body's absorbing. And I'm going to take those few stitches because I feel that it will improve my chances of healing better. And I'm not a mother who thinks that I can rest with my legs together. And that's a very reasonable approach. It's a philosophy thing. How much you are concerned about intervention versus how much are you concerned about the natural process? Which do you trust more? And there are different midwives with different philosophies. And of course, that will influence the mother's decision. Now, seaweed, I don't know any research about seaweed. I only know about it anecdotally, like when you read different midwives writing about their experiences. There are midwives who speak very highly of using seaweed as a natural way to keep the pieces of skin together as it's healing. And the mother can just throw out the seaweed. Every time she urinates, she puts in a different piece. But I don't know of any actual research to support that in the healing process, how it affects the healing process. I don't have research on that. There is glue that is used surgically, right? In the medical establishment, sometimes a layer of skin is sealed back together, not with sutures, like not with stitching, but with medical grade glue. And that could be an approach, but that's also you have to think through, do you feel comfortable with the ingredients in the glue compared to what suture material is made out of. That's a decision that a person has to make. How well do you feel the glue will work and keep the two pieces of tissue together compared to an actual stitch? Those are all factors that would influence your decision and how you would want to close and repair. I will tell you that there's different types of suture material. Not all suture material is created equal. Some suture material may have different benefits and different drawbacks. And a person can ask their midwife, you know, what kind of suture material do you carry? What kind of suture material do you recommend? Some people think that using a synthetic suture material is better than a natural one because they feel that it's less inflammatory, so it's less painful. Some midwives will recommend using a suture material like Vicryl Rapid, which gets absorbed very quickly in the body because they feel that there's no reason the mother should have these sutures in her for that long. They feel that a healthy woman can heal pretty quickly. We don't need to hold it together with suture material for so long. So there's different approaches and there's a decision to be made in that process. And of course, the mother's preference should be a priority because she's going to ultimately live with the decision that's being made so she's the one who has to be, you know, she's the one who should be an active participant in that decision if she chooses to be. 
Um, I'm just going to finish getting through the material and then I'm going to answer all these terrific questions. I keep getting really good questions. Okay, I wanted to mention just some of the ways to promote comfort after a tear or if there's swelling. You can, this is like in the book, like tricks of the trade, midwifery tricks of the trade book. They say that if you freeze a pad, like if you put on, really you should use ideally like an herbal liquid so that you're also getting, you know, something that's astringent and anti-inflammatory and antimicrobial. But even if you just freeze water and make it like an ice pad, using ice on that part of the body in the first 24 hours is very soothing for some mothers and it reduces the swelling. So it reduces the pain. And sitting in a sitz bath brings circulation to that part of the body. And ultimately, it's not the stitches that heal the body. The body's healing itself. The body's regrowing the tissue and reconnecting. It's just the stitches that hold it together to help that process. But to bring circulation to that area so that the body has nutrients and the body has cells that will help it build itself. This is my little four-year-old son who's breastfeeding. I'm sorry, he's participating. He's homeborn. <laughs> so he's right. Um, he's really part of the group. <laughs> um, he, you know, putting, putting ice on that part of the body is very relieving and will reduce swelling in the first 24 hours. And oh, the sit sap, it brings circulation and it will also reduce swelling, reduce pain and improve healing. Now, if a person tore in the past, it doesn't mean you have to tear again. Even if a person had an episiotomy, the body is resilient, and although scar tissue is less elastic than natural tissue, it doesn't stretch as easily, scar tissue. I've seen scar tissues hold up to really big babies, and women can and do heal from lacerations, and you can and should be intact even after a laceration. The other thing I want to mention is that for people who have had an extensive laceration in the past, or even if you've birthed a baby very gently, anytime there's pressure on those muscles, a really good way to rebuild your pelvic floor musculature is working closely with a very qualified and skilled pelvic floor physical therapist where the exercises that you're doing to re-strengthen those muscles, right? Not different than you would exercise your arms, exercise your legs. They're muscles like any other in the body. But doing targeted exercises that are individualized and designed for you, for your needs, and doing the homework, by the way, right? Not just coming for the sessions, but doing the exercises that she recommends between sessions, and it should just become a habit. That's a great way to restore function and to restore strength. And the body is wired towards survival. The body is designed to rejuvenate. The body is a genius creation. And when you help it heal, it wants to heal. And taking care of your body properly enables and empowers your body to heal. That's so important to know that a person can rebuild even if they've had trauma in that part of their body. <sighs> I'm trying to think of my last words before we go to the, to the questions. And I feel, 
you know, I feel overwhelmed by this topic because to me, it's such an important topic. So I hope I don't like beat myself up tomorrow that I left out something that I consider so, so important. So I hope that doesn't happen because this topic is, you know, it's a personal topic. So people don't talk about it, but it doesn't mean that there isn't preventable human suffering happening. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing something to prevent that. We really should be. So I, I really, I'm doing my best to really share as much information as I possibly can. And now let's go to the questions. Okay, one second. Um, sorry, I'm not tech savvy at all. Michal, I might need a little bit of help from you. <laughs> yes, not a problem. Okay, so Thank let's Thank you get so started. much. Um, so we have some questions. One was, where are you located? That's just oh. curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> so I live in Falakaway, right near the beach, where I walk pretty frequently. You're welcome to join me. I live right by the water, on, right off of Beach 9th Street on Jarvis Avenue. And I attend births in the, you know, the five boroughs in New York City, but I'm also right at the border to Long Island. So I have a number of clients on Long Island as well. Nice. Yeah. Um, okay. So now to the topic. <laughs> does, using, <laughs> does using evening primrose oil help to prevent tearing? So even in primrose oil, I associate it more with cervical ripening, right? It's used to, it's, women use it when they want to like help prepare their body for labor in advance of labor. If it's slippery, then that could prevent a tear, right? The goal of the oil is really to help facilitate a gentle easing out of the baby's head. So anything that's slippery can really accomplish that. But evening primrose oil specific properties are that it's similar to something called prostaglandins. And it has, I think, prostaglandins. Like it's really a cervical ripening agent. It ripens your cervix. That's what evening primrose oil is specific for. But if it's slippery, then that works. Um, okay. And the next question is, what do you think of using the epino? I'm sorry. What is that? How is that spelled? Epino. E-P-I-N-O. What is that? Is that like oh. a brand name to something that I don't know what that is? I'm sorry. Okay, so then I think maybe we'll we'll speak about this after the recording. Maybe we'll, we'll answer that question next time. Sure. Um, okay. The next question we have here is, I hear so many stories of episiotomies and it seems so common. How come and how can we ensure you don't get that? I mean, I feel like your whole uh. time about this, but... I, 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 recording all over again, but yes, go for it. I, episiotomy is medically sanctioned genital mutilation. And that's not my terminology. I'm not smart enough to create that terminology or description, but that's how midwives describe it. Episiotomy used to be done routinely because there was a perceived medical benefit toward it. But now we know there isn't. So it's genital mutilation, unless in the rare circumstance that it's truly life-saving or helpful to the baby or the mother. Like, it's so rare that an episiotomy should be indicated. So if you look at New York City hospitals, there's a hospital that still has an over 50% episiotomy rate. Do we really believe that all those mothers who happen to have babies there are all dysfunctional and need surgery to have their baby? No. It means that they're practice has never become updated 
even though the medical establishment has long condemned routine episiotomy use, which was done for many years, but it's long been condemned because it, it causes more incontinence, it causes more pain postpartum, it's associated, and this is straight from the literature, medical literature, it's associated with pain with sexual intercourse even 12 months postpartum, a woman's more likely to have pain if she had an episiotomy as compared to a natural tear. And it's associated with an increased risk for third and fourth degree tears. And it weakens the pelvic floor muscle. So, and why can't mothers be intact? But that's besides the point. Even if when you're just comparing natural tearing to episiotomy cutting, it's been really turned away. Like the medical establishment has really turned away from that. But like I said, there's right now a New York City hospital where there's an over 50% episiotomy rate. So providers are not necessarily up to date. They will still get paid for doing their job. I don't know why that's their job, but they will still get paid even if they don't follow mainstream medical guidelines. So it's deeply unfortunate. That's not to say an episiotomy is never warranted, but it's truly rare. That would be my answer. Thank you. Okay. And then how can... It's a surgery, you know? Right. Yeah. I want to show everybody this resource because if you're a reader, I want you to read, right? Because that's like something that you would enjoy. So this is something you can just order online. And I think it's valuable. You know, it's not um, evidence-based, meaning it's not like peer-reviewed medical research or midwifery research, but it's a compilation of midwives who've written their insights about how to prevent tearing. And you can pick and choose it. You know, use your instincts to know what feels right and what doesn't. It's called Tear Prevention and Treatment Handbook. And it, midwifery today publishes it. I, I've published some articles with them. I really like them. And you can buy it online. And they have an excellent description of how the medical establishment celebrates surgery. So by doing routine episiotomy, it allowed, you, it made a natural process that isn't so exciting in the medical establishment to suddenly become a surgical event. That's what they described there. And I think that's a great explanation for how episiotomies were so routine. And episiotomies are done in the most vulnerable moment of a woman's life. She's about to birth her baby, but she hasn't yet. So she's done the entire pregnancy labor, and she just hasn't finalized it yet. So it's very easy to pull one on her. Um, she also has a big abdomen that blocks her view, so she can't see how close she is to the birth. And um, I would like to think that if I was in the room where an unnecessary episiotomy was being cut, I would like to think that I would be one of those people who would put my hand there and say, sooner cut my right hand than to cut this mother's vagina. I really like to think I would say that. Wow. Okay. And then as a, as a patient or mother, birthing mother, um, what can we, like, should we do research on the doctor's rate? Should we speak about it beforehand? Okay, you know, I'm so in, in, I'm so supportive of informed choice. And, you know, I'm a home birth mother. I'm a, I like to think of myself as an informed consumer. And all of you are also. So part of becoming informed is learning what are your risks. If you value being intact, then finding out what the likelihood is that you're going to be intact with this birth attendant in the room is an important piece of information. If you don't value it and you value other aspects of the care, then you're less likely to find it out. But of course, if, if you care about it, then you should find it out, right? Beautiful, beautiful, okay. You don't wanna find out when it's too late, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I have another question. Does sure. any good position for birth block the midwife's view? And that's why doctors like us on our backs. This is this was no. asked around the same time when you were speaking about water birth and blocking. Oh, the oh sure. So, you know, water births, they just there's water in between. So unless the midwife's in the water with goggles on, I mean, how is she going to see perfectly? Right. But in, on a hands and knees position, of course, you can see it's right there. The baby's being born right there. Um, I've gotten down all the way to the ground, the back of my head touching the floor. I'll be down to the ground so that I can see and not just blindly put my hands there hoping for the best, right? So if you're willing to reposition yourself so that the mother can choose the best position for her because she's the one having the baby, she's the most important person in the room. If you're willing to reposition yourself a little bit creatively, almost every position you can visualize what's happening, right? Beautiful, beautiful. Okay. Someone asked, if someone is tight before giving birth, I'm assuming that you would increase one's chances of tearing. That was a question, kind of. How does one know how tight they are before giving birth? And are there any exercises slash practices that we can do during pregnancy to help loosen up? Um, I don't totally know what that word tight means. Like the muscles are tight, like a first time mother is more likely to have tight muscles. She's never stretched open. So it's really about slowing it down at the birth. I'm trying to think, can you do Kegels and just make yourself have stronger pelvic floor? Yes. And walking and exercising and good nutrition? Absolutely. But I really think that it comes down to what's going to happen in the final moments when her body is stretching to its maximum that it was designed to stretch to. Will she be given every advantage to stretch to the maximum that she was designed to stretch to, or will she be compromised in any way? Men have no problem stretching and growing and expanding to the maximum that they need to when they need to. And women were designed with just as much genius. We too can stretch to the maximum without any damage or injury in the majority of situations. Oh, I love that. Okay. What if baby comes out sunny side up? Should the midwife know how to turn that baby? Oh, a posterior baby. A posterior baby is a risk factor for a tear. And the reason for that is that in a posterior baby, the first part that's stretching the perineum is a larger part of the head. In an anterior baby, where the baby's face is, is facing the mother's spine, most babies are anterior, then a narrower part of the head is stretching the perineum first, and the perineum can stretch more gradually that way. But that being said, with proper caution, is it a risk factor for a tear? It is. But with proper caution, you know, in general, a posterior baby, you want to pay attention to it at the end of pregnancy to try to do exercises to facilitate a change in position. Because in general, posterior labor can be more uncomfortable also, like the back labor that people report. Those are more associated with posterior babies, very long labors with like a stubborn little bit of cervix that doesn't go away. Those are more associated with posterior babies. So especially for a first time mother, you want to be mindful of trying to facilitate a posterior baby to turn, not just for the tearing, but for other reasons as well. But you could be intact with a posterior baby. Sure. Okay. Someone's asking, can a doula help with preventing stretching? Sorry, I think she meant preventing 
Tearing? Tearing. Okay. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what the question is. Some of the doula, yeah, some of the doulas I've met are some of the most good-hearted human beings on, on, on the planet, I have to say. Like, they're women that they know so much, they care so deeply, they're in a system sometimes that they're powerless to stand up to. If they serve as a pair of eyes to just, firstly, to protect from an episiotomy, it depends when you look at the role of the doula. Is the doula an advocate or is the doula there to support your comfort? If the doula's role is to support comfort, then she's not really in any clinical role. But if you're asking your doula to be an advocate and she agrees to be that, and I don't know the official definition of what the doula role is, but if you're asking her to be an advocate, one way she could advocate for you is firstly to protect, like to make you aware. I mean, I've heard of people being cut open without anything being told. So to be informed, if someone's taking a scissor to you, I mean, wouldn't you, I mean, doesn't a human being have the right to know that someone's about to take a scissor to them? In any other context, that would be like, totally outrageous. It should be just as outrageous in the medical context if you if it's without consent, right? But the doula can make a person informed of that. The doula can and you know try to put a stop to that. The the doula can also tell the mother, like have a code word, like you're you're in the critical moment. Like slow it down now. You know, she can be like a pair of eyes. If there's no mirror being held up for the mother, then the doula is like a pair of eyes and can help guide her. But I don't want to place unnecessary burden on doulas, meaning doulas, it really has to be discussed in advance what the role of the doula is, because that's not, I don't think that's officially the role of the doula, but I'm not an expert on, you know, doula role. That would okay. be my answer. Beautiful. Um, this, I, we already answered in the beginning, but just to clarify, someone's asking, oh, are you a nurse? I oh, I'm a midwife. I'm a certified right. nurse midwife. So I'm, I, I did go to nursing school before becoming a midwife in the state of New York. You're not required to go to nursing school before becoming a midwife. Um, and now my doctorate that I'm finishing in, and that I'm finishing this year, Metashem, is in actually in nursing, but it's based on midwifery. But I see, I thought that that's what the epino is. I didn't know that that's what the device was called. So there's this device. I know, I, I know somebody many years ago, the first mother I ever heard who was intact had used that device. She used it in Israel. Is it more common maybe there because they use so, more midwives? Yeah. So this is the reason why I think maybe we should discuss after. Okay. And so let's discuss think. it because I need to research that. Okay. Yeah. 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 Sure. Um, okay. So someone asked, um, I had a third degree episiotomy at my first VBAC. High risk doctor said it's very common for a VBAC. Is this true? Well, a vaginal birth after a cesarean is just a vaginal birth. So if it's your first vaginal birth, you're not, you shouldn't be any more at risk for it than a first time mother. You're just a first time vaginal mother. Maybe he sees a lot of it, but that would be if he randomly drawing a skewed population of mothers who have third degree tears, why would he be? I don't know. VBAC, having a, a uterine scar should have nothing to do with having an episiotomy, no. It should not be any risk factor for tearing whatsoever. Just if it's your first vaginal birth, you have to look at yourself like a first time mother, even though really it could be your second baby. That's what I would say. Okay. Um, then we have, uh, it's a bit of, okay. are a risk factor for a third degree. Yeah, an episiotomy is a risk factor for a third degree. Absolutely. Okay. There's this question you can choose to answer or not. It's a bit personal. Um, the hospital had no ice pack for me for the first 24 hours after my episiotomy since my baby was born on Sunday and the shipment was arriving Monday. I had a really hard recovery. I couldn't sit for many weeks. She's wondering what, and this happened over 10 years ago. 
I don't know if you can give legal. She's asking if you can sue the hospital. I'm not sure if you can give legal advice over this. Right. You know, yeah. Legal, legal um, health care things. They deserve yeah. to be sued. Excuse right. me. But okay. they and my heart breaks. <laughs> and I think that that's so inhumane. And I'm so sorry to hear that because even having surgery there is so painful and difficult. And then to not even have the proper way to cope through that intense pain is so in is so inhumane and i'm i really i'm so upset to hear it but legalities are totally beyond my scope of right. i'm really hoping right. to become an attorney one day but that would really be once my children have grown so that's my next career <laughs> but not yet your <laughs> <laughs> um, attorney for women like this by the way what's driving me to do it is this one is this mother's situation i really want to know what can mothers do who have been hurt by the system to be able to reclaim what wasn't given to them. That to me is what my driving motive is, but yes. Um, how do I know, this same mother's asking, how do I know if I still have scar tissue? Okay, if the body was cut then, or even tore the body scars, you know, meaning the body puts the, how much scar tissue and how the scarring happened, like are there adhesions? Is the tissue like stuck together? It would need to be checked. Um, you can feel yourself. Like, does it feel lumpy? And does it feel? This is a hard question for me to answer. But you know, you can feel yourself. Like, does it feel lumpy and not like that? You don't feel as much sensation there. Does it feel like it doesn't stretch? You can feel yourself a little bit about the scarring, but the scarring is going to have to do with how extensive the pisiotomy was, and you know, if how deep it was. That's what I would say. Could we also possibly suggest to go to Vodekas? Would a Vodekas be able to help her with this? Uh, you know, I, 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 I officially am a certified Bodekas, so I know what the scope of practice is for a Bodekas. A Bodekas is really somebody who can distinguish between cervical bleeding and uterine bleeding. But beyond that, it's outside the scope of a Bodekas, unless that particular Bodekas has specific training in GYN or in obstetrics. But or in midwifery, but the actual role of Bodekas is to make distinctions and to tell the rub, yes, this blood looks like it's coming from the uterus. Yes, this blood looks like it's coming from the cervix. That's really the role of a Bodekas. Okay, okay. Um, okay I actually so trained by somebody in Crown Heights when I became a Bodekas. I did that about five years ago and I did it in Crown Heights actually. Yeah. Nice, yeah. okay. Yeah. Uh, okay, so there's a question. Sure. You never actually push. Will the baby just come out through contractions by themselves? So she I love saying, that. It sounds like that's the way, that's the only way not to tear. Meaning from what you're saying, that's the oh. she's getting. Oh, no. Okay. So I want to clarify. Yes, your baby will come out. <laughs> your, your baby will come out. Your baby wants to be born. Your baby is navigating itself down the bony passageway. Your baby's participating in the birth process. Your baby is repositioning itself and jiggling its little head out so that it fits through nicely. Your body's forces can birth that baby even if you don't actively participate with it. At a certain point, it will probably become irresistible to not bear down. It will probably be so instinctive, so powerful, so desirable to do that that you would follow your body's urges. That's a true physiologic birth. It's also referred to as a fetal ejection re reflex. That being said, a woman can push, 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 push. It's just in that final moment as she's stretching, stretching, stretching in that final moment, that's where you want to exercise caution to not give that final push or two, but to ease that baby out. 
And I've seen different permutations of waiting. It doesn't have to be that you're doing ah or breathing. It can mean you're coughing. Like, <clears throat> think of a cough. It's like a slight push. It, it, so it just weakens how strong that last push is. But we're talking really about the final pushes in the process. So just bring the baby down. The baby could be pretty high. You could be pushing quite an amount when you're not even stretching open yet. And that is totally fine. That's not in any way compromising you and putting you at risk for a tear. Did I clarify that well? Because I really want to make sure to clarify that. I don't want people to think that if I was, I'm sorry that I wasn't clear enough. I wouldn't want people to think that if you, you bear down, you know, you could jeopardize your body. It's really toward the very, very end. Beautiful. Okay. That was really helpful. Um, and even if you push through those final pushes, you might still be fine, by the way. You should just know. I'm just saying how to improve your chances of being intact is to slow it down. And also, if the midwife is putting good perineal support and keeping the head well flexed, you might be able to push pretty strongly and fiercely and uninhibited, and you still might be intact. And like I said, even if you do absolutely nothing, you might still be intact. Because again, women were designed to give birth. Love that. Um, okay, so I think the last question on this topic, and then... Sure. And then we're, it's a sham. okay, just kidding. We have two questions. Um, and then after this, Mitzvah everybody's welcome. We're going to continue this discussion. You hear me? About court. Hello? Oh. Judy? I think we lost her. Okay, so while she's rejoining, um, we are going, we have exactly the same time next week. We're going to be discussing more topics. So we are, um, we are discussing more topics. So we are going to continue that. I'm not sure. Judy, do we have you here? Um, all will be discussed next week. So we are hoping to discuss um, cord clamping, everything about that. We are hoping to discuss as well as um, group strep B positive and um, alternate, oh, okay. Alternate, there we go. Um, group strep B positive um, and alternate treatments for it, how to prepare for that test and how to treat it, um, and delayed cord clamping. So I'm not sure if Judy is back yet. <laughs> um, okay, I guess. Oh, there she is. I think we have her here. Hi, I'm so sorry. Do you hear me now, Michal? Yes, yes, we do. Hi, and I have this funny background on my phone because my children were playing with my phone. So ah. I guess it's a good background because it shows we're really part of the mammal kingdom <laughs> and the same animals birth without damage and without wounds and without injury. So can we within the vast majority of cases. So in a way, it's not such a bad background. Okay. There you go. <laughs> Bring why that's my background. That's the reason. Okay, that's <laughs> great. Funny. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's let's finish this off on 
Okay, so there was a question in regards to is it is it allowed to do an episiotomy without the mother being asked? That's also a legal question. What kind of consent did you give when you enter the hospital? That is very much a legal question. And what is the definition of consent? In the United States, you really have to get risk. You have to tell a person risk, benefits, alternatives, opportunity for questions. So that's also a sticky legal question. I wish mm -hmm. I knew. And I'm going to need to be in a different stage in life to ever be able to be in that role. So right, one right, right. Okay. And then um, our last question for tonight is, is it normal for a midwife not to do anything? Like just leave the mother to give birth and just monitor her? It's a very good question. You know, there's an approach called hands off, hands on and hands near. And hands off is considered a valid approach, by the way, to, to let the body do its workings without touching the mother, without doing perineal support, without flexing the baby's head, without using a warm compress, and just being hands off. And that's a very reasonable approach. And hopefully with, if, with, the, with the midwife being mindful of, is this baby coming too quickly to maybe guide the mother to slow it down? But totally being hands off is a very reasonable approach. And you can really ask the midwife, what is her success with that approach? What percentage of her mothers are intact? If you're a first time mother, you wanna know what percentage of first time mothers are intact. Because for a seventh time mother to be intact and a first time mother to be intact, might, she might have very different stats. So you really, if you care about it, you would wanna ask. Okay, perfect. Um, this is not about the topic, but just about you. How long have you been a midwife and do you have a partner? That's a really good question. So I've been a midwife since 2019. And I do not right now have a partner, though my dream would be to partner with somebody who's as similar to me as possible so that mothers who are seeking my care are getting cared for by somebody who's very, you know, it should be, a, it should be two people who are very well aligned in philosophy and clinical practice. So it's not, it's not like a random, oh, just get a midwife as a partner because she's skilled and she's loving. It's like, I want to be, you know, there's a wide spectrum of where midwives are in terms of how holistic, there's a wide spectrum in how hands on, how hands off. And I would love to be partnered and share prenatal care and share call and sometimes go together with her to birth, but sometimes myself, sometimes she herself, you know, each with a secondary midwife or an assistant. But right now I'm a solo practice. Right. I was about to ask about an assistant. Just no, so I, not everybody knows. No, I don't go with an assistant. I, I go with a second fully trained midwife or I'm a two midwife team, but the other midwife plays the role of secondary midwife. She's more like in the background than assisting. And I'm the one who receives the baby, guides the mother not to tear and I'm in the primary role. Very but right nice. now I'm a full 24 seven, you know, I don't know how, you know, I'm lucky I'm here tonight. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do, I definitely do. <laughs> Beautiful. Okay, so we are very excited. Mitesham, next week we're going to be discussing alternate treatments for GBS positive and cord clamping. So sure. Yay. Sure. Thank you very much. And Judy, if everybody were we have a living citizen um tradition. And Judy, uh -huh. you can definitely enjoy the monkeys behind you. Uh if you'd like to smile, we'll take a picture together. 
uh, we call the. I would love to be associated with your organization. Michal, I give you tremendous credit and tremendous respect for what you've accomplished. And I wanna say that with the information that you are disseminating to the public, and I know you've had other terrific speakers come. I, I hope I come near those other speakers, but I, I, you've had some really terrific people come and share such important information. I have to say so much unnecessary human suffering and harm can be prevented just from the information that you disseminate on your platform. So I, I'm really humbled to be part of it and I'm really looking forward to coming back. Yeah.